Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. Hey, it's Vic. I want to give you a heads up that today's guest talks a little bit about suicide thoughts. But he's also one of the funniest people I've talked to on this podcast. So, on to the show. In three, two... In the mid-2000s, Andy Bellotti was an ambitious guy in his 20s. Yeah, things were going really well for me. He's from Argentina, but he moved to the U.S. to study in New York City at NYU, and he soon found out that nutrition was his thing. Like when I started getting into nutrition, I very quickly started writing for publications, and I had a blog This is back in 2006 when blogs were still kind of starting, but I had a blog that had a a good amount of following and I had, you know, some really big nutrition luminaries pointing to my blog and all of that. And then as a result of that, I, I had a lot of faith and hope in my future, in my career. It made sense. He was a slim, fit vegan who loved writing and he figured he could help people live better lives. So he became a certified dietitian. And when it came time to find a job, he got a great offer to be a health coach in Las Vegas. He'd have his own office, helping casino staff plan meals and get exercise. And the pay was good, too. But instead of being excited about this opportunity, Andy was worried. Worried because he already had a bit of history with Las Vegas. I was in a relationship and we came out here on vacation because I had never been here. Prior to that, I had never gambled and I hadn't even had an interest in gambling, believe it or not. And then ever since then, I, you know, ever since that first visit to Vegas, I would come out here once a year specifically to gamble. Okay. That's and, all I did. And, and at that time, would you say gambling was under control, like you would just do it for fun every so often. Well, that's the thing. It's, I mean, I was under the delusion that it was under control, but I mean, you know, I came here for 48 hours in 2009 with the plan to only spend $300 on gambling. And I ended up spending $2,500 in 48 hours. So clearly it was already a problem. But when he got that job offer, he thought, well, maybe actually living in Las Vegas wouldn't be the same as a vacation where you want to splurge. So he took the job, and as he settled in, it seemed like things might be okay. But then three weeks go by, and he gets something in the mail. It's a packet from a casino. It's filled with coupons for meals at restaurants, players clubs, and $50 in free play. And I thought, sweet, I'll just go and, you know, play the play the free play. And whatever I end up with, whether it's $5 or $500, i will just cash it out and go home. Famous last words. So that first night, Andy, your first big gambling night out with the coupons, how much money did you lose? Of my own money, uh, I think it was like four or $500. That's a lot. Yeah, it is. But, you know... <laughs> That's the crazy thing, though, that looking back on it, yes, that's, that's a lot of money. But yet compared to what I was losing as time went on, it kind of feels like peanuts. Like, I wish that I had stopped when I had only lost $500. I'm Vic Vela. 
I'm a journalist, a storyteller, and a recovering drug addict. And this is Back From Broken from Colorado Public Radio. Stories about the highest highs, the darkest moments, and what it takes to make a comeback. On this show, we often talk about people like me who've struggled with substances. Well, today, we're going to talk about gambling. It's a different kind of habit that 2 million people in the U.S. alone are addicted to. It's never been easier to get lured in. The slot machines that Andy liked seem less like games and more like experiences. Yes. Because I think people, a lot of people at least, have in their minds those old games of pulling the lever and seeing the three cherries come across the screen. Yeah, no, that's that's not (laughs) it at all. You have, you know, like 60-inch screens, and you have both speakers, and you have these super comfortable chairs. There's one game, like a Willy Wonka game, where in the bonus round, you're like going through like the, whatever, the, the chocolate river, whatever it's called. Uh-huh. And like, as you're going through it, the chair is actually like swaying back and forth. I mean, it's, it's a whole multi-sensory experience. That's incredible. Um, yeah, so it is not Cherry Cherry 7. In fact, I never played a Cherry Cherry 7 machine. <laughs> Instead, you're floating through a chocolate river of dreams. It was almost like I was stepping into a game show of sorts. Um, and I was like, you know, and all attention was on me. And then when you hit the third symbol, there was a a separate sound that kind of like locked it in place. And then this pre-recorded voice would come up and say things like, amazing, terrific, inconceivable. Confetti flying, right? Yeah. Yeah, diamonds filling up the screen. I mean, yeah. Yeah. And it sounds so um, simplistic to say, but that was so seductive to me. Something about it made me feel special. All I did was just tap a plastic button, but I felt like I had somehow, you know, unlocked the secret to life. I mean, that's how it feels when you're in that chair. Well, you mentioned all attention was on you. Um, Why was that important to you? I already had like in my mind, I'm like, okay, by 30, I had to have a book deal, which I mean, that's a completely arbitrary milestone that I set for myself. It was my way of being like, I need, I think it was like, I got so used to as a child getting external validation for, you know, for being ahead of the curve that then once I was part of the curve, which there's nothing wrong with that, but once I was no longer the standout person, it was almost like my identity got lost because I was like, well, then who am I? Andy says, even though he was successful at work, He wasn't living up to his own ambitious goals. He couldn't handle the pressure he put on himself to succeed. So when Andy turned 30, instead of working on a book deal, he was gambling. A lot. What did an average day look like? So the the night before payday, starting around 11, 15, 11, 20, I would be on my couch and I'll never forget, for some reason, I was always watching Modern Family reruns. (laughs) Okay. So now whenever I watch Modern Family, I I always flash back to like being on my couch. (laughs) But um, I would be on my couch and I would open my banking app every minute to see if the direct deposit hit. And the second it hit, I would literally run to my car, 
and drive to the closest casino, and I would run to the doors and start gambling. So that was usually what would happen. Um, like, I'm and, picturing like a kid when Santa Claus is coming, right? Like that kind of joy. Totally, yes. Except that Santa was coming with like lumps of coal <laughs> for, for five years. So I preferred to gamble for the most part um, starting at midnight into the next morning. And I would leave at 7.45 in the morning because I had to go to work. Otherwise, I would have stayed. I would go home, change my clothes. I would not shower and go to work. So you would not combine booze with, with no. your gambling. What about drugs? Because uh, nope. not at all. Control. You know why? Because for me, drugs are about a loss of control. Wow. And I always wanted to be in control. And this is why gambling was so – it fit me like a glove because I could go on a 12-hour gambling binge and then go to work. And maybe I looked tired, but, the, you know, I could still drive. I could still speak. I was coherent. You couldn't smell gambling on me. Like gambling wasn't leaving track marks on my arms. So as somebody who is all about control, that was also great because I could really keep people – in the dark, very easily. And keeping people in the dark like that turned a city of bright lights and constant action into a pretty lonely place. Andy has a vivid memory of this one Thanksgiving. And remember, he's a vegan, so Turkey Day wasn't really his thing. So I woke up around, I don't know, 9 or 10, ate something quick for breakfast, and went to the casino. And I was there for, oh, geez, uh, from like 10 a.m. to like 11 p.m. or so, um, gambling the entire time and uh, losing. I mean, I lost a ton of money that day. 13 hours in a casino on Thanksgiving. Uh, That doesn't sound very happy to me. No, but here's the thing that's also kind of twisted. Because this is a 24-hour city, and because there's so much gambling addiction here, I was surrounded by people. That's the weird thing. I would, of course, see the same people over and over because we were all addicts. But in my delusion, I would see somebody, and I remember thinking, ugh, this guy's here again. He's here all the time. And it's like, yeah, because I'm here all the time. Um, but then even I, there were some people who like liked the same machines that I did. And I would see them all the time because we would literally play next to one another. We never knew each other's names. It was more just, hey, how's it going? Hey. And if one of us hit, giving each other a high five. And that was it. I mean, it's crazy to me that there were people who I knew for years and we never spoke. And then there would be times when I would be at a slot machine just staring at the screen with people on either side of me, and I didn't even look at their face once. Andy, how bad did your financial situation get? Oh, I mean, it horrible. So the way I summarize it is I moved to Vegas with one credit card, no debt. Five and a half years into gambling, I had 12 credit cards, $35,000 in credit card debt, my 401k completely cashed out, my health savings account completely cashed out. I think I had like $10 in my savings account. And looking back on it, the whole time that I was gambling, even though I made, you know, on paper, I made a good living, I was living paycheck to paycheck. 
And he's pretty sure that no one he was close to knew he was gambling as much as he was. Not his boss, not his friends. Even his family had no idea he was struggling with this. And you even hit it from your mom when she would come visit. Oh, yeah. I mean, my pa- oh, absolutely. I remember this is, I think, also pretty sick. So my mom is not really a a slot player. But so but when, when my parents were here, we would go to dinner. And then because like I needed a fix, I would convince my mom to play just so I could watch. Wow. Yeah. And she would say and, and there were times when she would be like, do you want to? Well, do you want to play? Um, and I was like, no, I'm like, this just doesn't really interest me. And then afterwards, I would say goodbye to her and go gamble for eight hours. And still on paper, Andy was doing well. Full-time job. He's joining me now, one of my regular guests, Andy Bellotti. He'd go and on local television and appear on YouTube videos and at health conferences talking about nutrition. And what exactly do you do? Well, so so my full-time gig when I'm not chatting with you. Mm-hmm. Is, Early in his career, uh, a, some heavy hitters in the food and diet world were noticing him. You know, Mark Bittman would share my my post, and then I very quickly got a lot, like a, a, a good amount of following. And then I was writing for these magazines. And instead of me being like, I like the work that I do, it became, oh, Mark Bittman likes the work that I do. So therefore, <laughs> it's good. And that that wasn't good for me. That like propagated some really bad... Uh, thinking on my part. And your ego is just blowing up. Totally. But I always say that I'm probably the only compulsive gambler who would come home and have a kale and hemp seed salad because I was still, (laughs) you know, in my nutrition world. So I was not rolling up at the Taco Bell drive-thru at three in the morning. So much of my life was in utter chaos and going downhill. But yet when it came to my eating, I was sticking true to my, to what I preached. So you're kind of wearing these two faces, clearly. And you would go on TV and you would smile and you would tell people, uh, you know, how to eat healthier and to lead healthier lifestyles. Um, were you ever asked if you gambled by any of the television anchors? Not by the television anchors, but I remember I have a friend down in Argentina who is a producer for some radio shows. And there's one radio show that she produces where there's a segment where they interview Argentines who live abroad and ask them, you know, What's it like living where you live, et cetera? And she asked me if I wanted to go on. And I said, yeah, sure. But I had a feeling that because I live in Vegas, they were going to ask me about gambling. So I didn't tell anybody. And sure enough, the host asked me, like, you know, if I gambled. And I think the night before I had gambled like $1,500 and lost. (laughs) And it was funny because when he asked, I just did my best talking about two faces and just acting. I just acted totally disinterested. And I think I said something like, uh, not really, like maybe if a friend comes to visit, but <laughs> when you live here, it's just in the background. So it's just, it's just not something on my mind. What compels you to go to all to that extreme? You didn't even say, oh, I'll go on weekends or something. I mean, you just, it was a flat out lie. Yeah. Total denial. Well, I think it was just because I knew how bad it was. I think I had to really I didn't even want to open the door because my thing, I guess in my mind, it was if I said I did it maybe once a month, that would just lead to more questions. So I figured the more bored I sound and the less I talk about it, there won't be a follow up. We'll move on to the next topic. (laughs) Um, Yeah, it was total. I, I think it was fear of being found out. I think one thing that we addicts do very well is lie. Yep. And I did it for five years straight it increasingly made me feel like the biggest fraud. Because here I was talking about, you know, 
you have to make healthy choices because you're worth it. And even talking to my own clients as a coach, you know, I would be talking about maybe how they were using food as an emotional crutch. And meanwhile, I would then leave work and go sit in front of a slot machine for nine hours and destroy myself. What was the biggest one-time win you recall? I want to say it was uh, 3000 and something, um, maybe like 3400 That's yeah. a nice payout. I'd take yeah. it. Yeah. I mean, and, and it was off a $1.60 bet. And I understand, too, that the worst thing that can happen to a compulsive gambler is a big win. I mean, talk about dopamine rush, because it's like not only does the machine go crazy or well, the one that I was playing would go crazy again with like, you know, the the confetti and the diamonds and, and the guy going, you know, amazing, terrific, you know, inconceivable and spotlights. But also here in, in Nevada, if you win on one spin of a machine, if you win $1,200 or more, the machine freezes and a slot attendant has to come and pay you in bills. Even that feel, makes you feel like even more of a winner. You know, and then some people maybe, you know, people are watching and you're literally being paid $3,400 in hundreds. Um, yeah. I'm picturing so, like know, a game show, like, you know, Bob Barker <laughs> just handing you $100 bills or whatever, right? And totally. everyone's like applauding and you know, envious. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and then people, and then if, if there's people playing around you, you know, people are high-fiving you and saying congratulations. And then I'm not surprised by this, but for me, most of the time, the 90% of the time that I wasn't walking away, it was like, oh, sweet. Now I have more money. I'm going to keep playing so I can win more. If I lost, I wanted to keep playing so I could win back what I lost. Mm. If I won, I wanted to keep playing so I could win more. So win or lose, the final path was always keep playing, and then eventually you, you end up losing. And I remember sitting in my car and opening up the notes app on my phone and writing something like, I just lost $1,500. I feel miserable. I feel like a loser. You know, thinking that if I read that every day, it would help, but it didn't do any. I ended up deleting the note like the next day. Wow. So I tried all these things, but, and then, you know, there were definitely moments, not every time, but toward the end, leaving a casino at five in the morning and really just thinking, why don't I just turn the wheel into the highway divider and just end it all? Um, and the reason why I didn't is because that wasn't a guarantee that I would die. Like for all I knew, I would turn into the highway divider and end up a quadriplegic with hospital bills. Oh my gosh, Andy. That would just add to my financial burden. That's what kept you from doing it. Yeah. After the break, the conversation that turned things around for Andy and how he avoids temptation today. Hey, it's Vic. I really appreciate you being a back from broken listener. It means a lot. Now, can you do me a favor? Can you take a moment to find Back From Broken on whatever podcast app you use, like Apple Podcasts or Spotify, and give us a like, a rating, and even a review? If you think what we're doing matters, 
If you think it's important to talk about recovery with compassion and hope, all you got to do to help spread the word is like, rate, or review this podcast. It really does help other people find Back From Broken. Thanks for listening, and thanks for supporting podcasts from Colorado Public Radio. In 2017, Andy was working a good job, had some stature as a nutritionist, getting attention and doing TV appearances. But at the same time, he'd been in a tremendous downward spiral for more than five years. The moment he finally came to terms with everything that was happening really came by surprise. Andy was in Los Angeles with his boss, who was trying to get Andy to think about leaving Vegas to work in L.A. They were sitting in a car outside of his hotel, about to say goodbye. He's like, just think about what I said. You know, if you want to move out here, we could probably swing it in about six months. And I said, okay, cool. And then he says, did you think about it financially? Like, can you actually swing that? And in my head, I'm like, no, there's no way in hell. But I said, yeah, I probably could. Again, the lying. And then he says, and this is what opens up the floodgates. So then he says to me, Yeah, I'm sure you can, because you seem like a financially responsible guy. Oh, man. So he says this, because again, from his viewpoint, I have this really, you know, really basic car. I'm not going on like shopping sprees or traveling. And he knows how much he pays me. So he's like, clearly this dude is just like, you know, saving a bunch of money. Yeah. And he said that. And, you know, normal. I mean, I could have just been like, all right, cool. See you tomorrow. And just left. But there was something when he said, you seem like a financially responsible guy, that something in my gut just said, all right, like the jig is up. You can't keep this up. You have to tell him. And suddenly I just said, "Um, I got to tell you something. And he said, what's going on? And then it took me a while to get it out. I I was just kind of sitting in his passenger seat and I was like, oh, my God, oh, my God. And he thought I was getting sick, so he just started turning up the air conditioning. And I was like, no, I'm not, I'm not getting sick. <laughs> I just said, I have a gambling problem. And of course, then I broke down, and then we drove somewhere else, because then we talked for an hour. And I told him everything. Was that the first time in your life you'd ever said those words? To that degree, yes. Prior to that, I had told two other people in my life... Um, you know, I think maybe I might have a problem. Yeah, so you were, you would hedge with other people, but with, yes. this was the first time it was a flat out admission. Um, what That's a big moment. What do you remember feeling as those words came out of your mouth? Well, I mean, I felt everything. I felt shame. I felt embarrassment, but I also felt relief. It was like, yeah. I mean, I think that's why I, I mean, I cried for a full hour. I think it was just years of 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 shame and embarrassment and anger and frustration and self-loathing all just coming out. Um, and I think I'm, I'm so glad it happened because he's the, I mean, he also, he listened to me very intently, but he's the one who also suggested, well, you know, have you, have you considered a 12-step program? And, you know, prior to that, I had seen the pamphlets next to the ATMs and the casinos, you know, when, when, the, when the fun stops, but I never thought about it. Um, but in that moment in telling him, I felt – I also felt validated because he really listened to me. Yeah. Um, and I think I felt heard. And for once, 
after five years of feeling hopeless, after that conversation, I felt some hope. Andy really wanted to hit a meeting right away, but the gambling hotline he called gave him the wrong meeting times for his area. So he had to wait a day. Did you had to white knuckle it the night before or did you gamble? I did not gamble. What no. was that like? Um, I think I was so still processing all the events from like telling my boss and okay. and and just the events of, you know, driving around the city and and literally going to doors that are that are not open. It all ended up working out great because that meeting, so the person the Tuesday morning meeting, the person who leads the meeting comes in and it's just me and her for a few minutes and she knew that I was new and I sat down and she came over and gave me some literature and then she gave me, I'll never forget, she gave me a hug and she said, it's going to be okay. And I already started getting emotional and it was a very small meeting. It was only five people and I cried. When I told my story, I actually didn't even shed a tear, but when I was hearing other people's stories, I just kept crying because I was feeling hope. You know, I, I'll never forget there was somebody who is in his 70s and he has 10 years in the program. So he started when he was like 64 or something. And he's talking about how he was homeless and he stole from his, you know, from from family. And yet here he is now 10 years in recovery and 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 doing great. And I needed to hear that because that's what gave me hope. Yeah. You saw for probably for the first time, people who had turned their lives around. Yeah, and people who were telling stories where I would be like, oh my God, yes, that's totally it. You know, yeah. where they would talk about going to the casino and being like, I'll just play the free play and staying there for 12 hours. And me, that's me, that's me. Yeah, and so, you know, as much as the support of family and friends has been crucial and I appreciate it, there's nothing like being in a room with people who have been through the exact same hell that you've been through. I had the same experience in recovery, even though my addiction was totally different than Andy's. When I first sat in a recovery meeting and admitted to being a cocaine addict, it felt like the weight of the world being lifted because you're surrounded by so much support. So as Andy worked the program, he began to realize that his gambling addiction wasn't about money. There were a lot of other emotions behind the gambling that was causing him to remain in that spiral, emotions he wasn't facing. I think for so long, I kind of um, had the sensation that if I were to display human traits like feeling sad or feeling lonely, that I was somehow a failure and that I had to always be, you know, I had to always succeed and I couldn't be average. And that's why the whole thing of like, you know, by 30, I need to have a best-selling book. I need to have a, I need to have a McMansion. Yeah. I need to be the number one nutritionist in the world. Like all of that was coming from the fact that I felt like I had to always be the best. And I think one thing I learned in recovery is that I need to just cut myself some slack and just realize that I'm not a robot. I'm not a machine. I'm a human being. And I need to embrace that fully. I mean, I know it sounds kind of cliche to say, but I'm kind of grateful for the way it went down because this is what ultimately led me to face my demons. And maybe if I hadn't moved here and had this gambling addiction, I would have just gone through the rest of my life with all these unaddressed, undealt with issues. That's it. That's, that's, that's the big revelation in recovery, isn't it? It's you're grateful for the pain 
Uh, and people look at you like you're crazy for saying that, but it's true. And I, I got to tell you, you know, one thing that has shifted for me is that initially for a while, I was going to meetings every day. Mm -hmm. And as time has gone on, um, I'm not going as frequently. It's very common to hear that, you know, if you stop going to meetings, you're pretty much going to relapse. Like yeah. that's the message that I got. But what I started realizing is that the reason why I'm why I'm not going to meetings as often is because thanks to recovery, I'm now filling up my life with other things. I think it's important for people to also just do whatever helps them the most. Um, and I think all of our journeys, though similar, you know, have have different details to them, and that's okay. You still live in Vegas. I do. Same apartment. I still have that same casino a minute and a half away. That begs the question, why? Yeah, well, good question. So, <laughs> well, so the first one is that financially at the very beginning, I could not afford to move. It just, I mean, I had no financial sure. means of doing that. Uh, but I mean, listen, I, I feel like if you can stop gambling here, you can stop gambling anywhere. Andy, a lot of your friends now are recovering gambling addicts. Um, what does a group of former gamblers who live in Las Vegas do for fun? Mainly um, meet, you know, meet for coffee, go to lunch. Again, I think when, when you're with other people who are in recovery, um, I think much like me, the sight of a slot machine itself is not the trigger. The trigger was loneliness and shame and, and all these other things. So when, you, when you're in recovery and when you're meeting up with somebody for coffee or lunch, you're both in a better place, so your mind doesn't even go there. That shame that used to be there everywhere he went has now turned into a sense of purpose for Andy. Instead of hiding this from everybody in his life, he shares what he went through. In fact, he sees a lot of parallels between what he tells his clients and how he approaches recovery. I think that in order, in order to successfully navigate a chronic health issue or an addiction, you have to, well, you, you have to kind of like re, retrain your brain and readjust your habits. You need a support system and you also need to engage in self-care. I think if you do all those things, you'll be able to successfully navigate whether it's a chronic disease or an addiction. And I know that even when I was in my addiction, I remember thinking there's no way in hell that I can get out of this financial hole. Nobody's gonna understand me. Everybody's gonna make fun of me. Like I have hit rock bottom and I'm here to tell you, you can turn it around. You can beat addiction, you really can. And it, and it does get better. And all you have to do is for a moment, just be vulnerable and ask for help. And when you ask for help, it is there. Andy Bellotti continues to work as a dietitian in Las Vegas, helping people live better lives now that he's living a better life himself. Back From Broken is a show about how we're all broken sometimes and how we need help from time to time. If you're struggling with gambling addiction, 
You can find a list of resources at our website, backfrombroken.org. This is Elizabeth from Denver, Colorado, and here's what's been happening in my recovery. I've recently started a relationship with a gal who has a little bit less time than me, and I'm showing her what has worked for me in staying sober and um, living a happy life in recovery. Hi, my name's Will Snyder from Denver, Colorado, and here's what's been happening in my recovery recently. On January 3rd, I hit four years of sobriety, and I was uh, playing music at the Bluebird Theater on that date to a sellout crowd, and they cheered me on in my recovery. We'd love to hear how you're doing in your recovery. And we might share it on this podcast so everybody listening can give you a virtual pat on the back too. Record a voice memo or MP3 and send it to Vic at backfrombroken.org. If you know someone who might benefit from stories like this, please share this podcast with them. We spent more than a year building this show on research, interviews, production, editing, because we know it'll help people, but it does cost money. The people who listen to this podcast, people just like you, make it a reality. You can give a little bit now at backfrombroken.org. Back From Broken is hosted by me, Vic Vela. It's a production of Colorado Public Radio's Audio Innovation Studio and CPR News. Thanks to the people in recovery who helped us develop this podcast. Ben, Matthew, Sean, and Mateo, thank you so much for your guidance. The show is produced by Rebecca Romberg, John Pino, and Matthew Simonson. Rachel Estabrook edited this episode. Our executive producers are Brad Turner and Kevin Dale. Music by Brad Turner and Daniel Mesher. Thanks also to Francie Swidler, Kim Wynn, Hart Van Denberg, and Kevin Beatty. Please subscribe, rate, and review the show on Apple Podcasts. It really helps other people find it. And thanks for listening to Back From Broken.